This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. The Bible is not a collection of disconnected moralistic stories. A lot of us learn it like that. You learn the story of uh, Jonah and the fish and David and Goliath and Jesus doing this. And we learn them as individual stories. They are more than that. It is the one overarching story of how the cross of Christ will rescue a fallen people. It is one story, one big picture. So what I want to do is if you see this, when, uh, for those of you that were here about 18 months ago, we went through an Old Testament survey. We looked at these 15 points right there under the Old Testament sections to understand a narrative approach of how you could understand the Bible, at least the Old Testament. What we're going to do in the next coming 15 weeks or so after this uh, Sunday night We're going to look at the New Testament that way, where there's 15 key points. If you know those 15 key points, you'll understand the big picture of the Bible. Tonight, what I want to do is I'm going to teach you the entire story of the Bible, okay? We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to enter Revelation. I got some water behind me, and we're just going to get after it, okay? I want you to see the huge 30,000-foot level view of what the Bible is, because it's not disconnected stories, okay? So I'm going to move. I'm going to have my stopwatch on, because i got about a minute and a half for every point that I can make, okay? And we're going to move in this. There's going to be stuff you're going to miss tonight. But what I want to do is I want you to see the Bible as it's supposed to be, as one story pointing to the person of Jesus. We ready? Okay, I don't mean to sound energetic. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) All right. Excuse me. You are so funny. Let's go. Creation, number one. God created the world out of nothing. As you're following in your notes, this is what I want you to do. You write that sentence out for us. But in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things through the existence, and all he did was he spoke them into being. He said, Let there be light, and the light had to happen, right? There's a rhythm of creation that takes place. God says something, it happens, and then he says these words. It is Good. It's good, right? It's just a good thing. It's finished. It's complete. I, I enjoy it. This is a very, very good thing, right? It is good. He creates um, the light. Then he, on day two, he creates the sky and the waters. Day three, he creates the land. Day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. And you go, wait a minute. I thought the light was already there. I had been creating the light on, based on himself. You wonder where the light came from before the sun, moon, and stars? It was him. The same thing that would illuminate us one day in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sun, is no moon, no stars. There's no need for it. He creates the sky. He creates, uh, then he creates things to go into the sky. He creates the birds. He creates the fish. Day six, he creates all the animals that go on the earth, including people. He creates man in his own image to reflect his image, to reflect his glory And so what God is wanting to do inside of these men is that they would reflect his image to a world, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And he gave them one rule and one rule rule alone. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. But what took place was that these individuals, they decided that they were going to, in their own right, decide that they were going to do it their way. Mankind rebelled against God in the fall. Adam and Eve were created They were supposed to live and reflect God's glory. They were supposed not to eat of that tree, but they were expected to be able to take what God said was good and evil and accept it as that, and instead they would rather define what was good and evil. And so they took that into their own hands, and they ate. And as soon as they ate from that, they knew that they were guilty. They fled from the presence of the Lord. They covered up, trying to cover up their guilt and their shame. Something happened along the way. God called out to them, sought them out, gave them consequences for their actions, 
and then exiled them from the garden. Satan, in the form of a serpent, he had consequences. Adam had consequences. Eve had consequences. And as they're there covered up in their fig leaves, trying to cover up because they felt dirty and shameful, here's what happens. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and what? Her seed, which is a very interesting way to say it because when you normally think about that, you don't think of the female as having seed. You think of the male having seed. In Genesis 3.15, there's a prophecy. There's going to be a birth that no man can get the credit for that's going to come and reverse what happened in the garden. Not his seed, her seed. It's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first time the gospel's ever mentioned. He says, that, that seed, Satan's seed, He's going to bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He goes, Satan, the moment when you strike that man on the heel is the moment he's going to crush your head. Genesis 3.15, can you think of what God may be foreshadowing one day? Where some birth that does not get the credit, that no man can get the credit for, that one day Satan will strike at his heel with a possible nail. And in that moment, he also defeats and crushes Satan's head. Now with this, the Bible starts out very, very bad, very quickly, and so sin escalates so much to the point of a flood. And this point reminds us that God punished sin. After Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain kills his brother Abel, sin continues to multiply, get out of control, that at one point God says, enough is enough. Stop it right here. I don't want anything else to do with these people. And so he calls a man named Noah and says, I'm going to, because I'm putting favor and grace on you, I'm going to give you a plan so you can escape my wrath, escape my judgment, build a boat. And because there's one day there's going to come rain, and Noah says, what's rain? And he goes, just trust me. Start building, son. And what happens is, is that he builds this boat, and folks, get this picture. If you're on the inside of the boat, God's wrath is coming against you, but it's being stopped by something. It's being stopped by these planks of wood, so God's wrath is striking the planks of wood, and if you're on the other side of that, you're okay. If you're on the outside of those planks of wood, you are now in danger of receiving God's wrath, pointing to another day where God's wrath was going to be coming to a plank of wood with somebody stretched upon it, and if you are behind him, you're all right. But if you're out in front of it, the wrath of God is still coming your way. This comes out, God is saying, I don't play around with sin. And he puts a rainbow in the sky when the rain finally subsides to say, I promise I'll never destroy the earth again by flood. Next time it'll be with something else. But I don't play around with sin. He promised it's going to stop. Now the problem was this, just as soon as Noah got out of the boat, you would think he's the most righteous man on the earth. And what he did was, he got drunk and got naked and ran around his family. Showing us that even the most righteous man cannot do what God has called him to do. So the people began to try to make their way to God. In fact, they even create a tower to try to reach up to God by the Bible, and God separates them because he says, you're not going to be able to reach me. God's going to have to come down to you. Which brings us to point number four. There's a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham's family. The story of Abraham is like this. God looks out upon a man who's not really noble, not really worthy, not really worth a whole lot, and says, I choose you to love you. Why? Because I choose you to love you. Why? Because I want you to go and share with the world that I love them. I'm going to start here. I'm going to bless you so you'll be blessing all the nations of the earth. Your family is going to bless all families. And Abraham says, that sounds awesome, but I don't have a family. I don't have a son. How is this going to happen? Because God is going to do the miraculous. Your wife at an old age is going to give birth. It's going to be unbelievable. You're not going to be able to imagine what God can do. And through this birth one day, 
Abraham and Sarah are able to give birth to a son named Isaac. And one day, God takes Abram out on a night's walk. And he says, Abram, can you count those stars? And he says, God, I can't count the stars. There's too many. And he says, so will your spiritual descendants be. You're going to have more spiritual descendants than the stars are in the sky. And Abraham said in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and God gave him righteousness. He wasn't righteous. God gave that to him on his account because of belief, because of faith. See, this faith believing, uh, allowing us to get to righteousness, it's not a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament concept given. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has a whole lot of kids, okay? Jacob's name is turned to Israel. He has 12 sons. And one of those sons is a son by the name of Joseph, who uh, brings us to our next point in number five, a placement. God placed Joseph and his family in Egypt. God takes this young man who began to have these dreams that his brothers and his mom and dad would bow down and worship him, and he couldn't understand what he was talking about. Not the best way to win over your brothers. They hated him. They couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand the coat that his dad favored him with. They wanted to get rid of him, so one day they decided to beat him up, sell him into slavery, and God happened to put him into Egypt. While he's there in Egypt, God shows favor upon him over and over and over again, all the way till he is the second in position and the mightiest nation in the world. Why? Because God wants all nations to know him. And he puts Joseph there so that one day when a famine hits and God's people look like they're going to die, they come in and they come to Joseph because he's the only one who has food in all the world. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph shows them grace and gives them food. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says something very interesting. Brothers are worried they're gonna, he's going to take it out on them, take revenge. And he goes, don't worry about this, guys. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to preserve a many people alive. You know why Joseph was okay in his role as a righteous, suffering servant? Why? Because the Messiah is coming from our family. We're not going to die of famine. God's promise is somebody's coming from his family. We're not going to die. And so God put me in this role. Follow this. I'm going to suffer unjustly on the behalf of somebody else. I'm going to suffer unjustly on the behalf of someone else. So God puts Joseph in there, and then all of a sudden Joseph brings his family, his father named Israel, into a country named what? Egypt. And hundreds of years later, that new pharaoh doesn't know the story of Joseph. All he knows about all these Israelites is they have lots of babies and they're really big guys, right? Which is a problem, which leads us to point number six, the Exodus. God rescued the Israelites from bondage. Pharaoh puts these Israelites into slavery. It's harsh. It's horrible conditions. And the people of God call out to God. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 25, it says this beautiful line. It says they called out to God, and God knew. He knew what he was going to do. He knew their pain. He knew their suffering. So he sent Moses to go in there, a man who'd been raised in that family, to tell Pharaoh, you will let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't even know the name of this God. I've got so many gods. What in the world do you, I don't even know you're talking about. And he says, I am who I am has sent me to you. The God is more than the God of the sun, God of the stars. He has sent me to you. And so all of a sudden, through a series of 10 plagues, God gets Pharaoh's attention. And at every single one of these plagues, when the sun goes black, guess what he's attacking? The Egyptian sun God. Oh, Pharaoh, you think the sun God can protect you? Watch the sun go out. Oh, you like the way that the cows, you think that somehow shows your strength? Watch the cows go down. You are not in control of this, Pharaoh. You are not God until there's one final plague that happens, the Passover. 
where God is going to come in his wrath, kill the firstborn of every household, unless a pure sacrificial lamb is sacrificed. No bones on this lamb can be broken. It has to be perfect, no blemish. It has to be slaughtered. It has to be consumed. But just because the animal died doesn't mean you are safe. You have to apply the blood on the doorpost of your house. It's not enough that the innocent suffering has died. It's the fact that you have to say, that's for me, God. So the angel comes through and the people are passed over and Pharaoh says, leave from this place. Understand this, God rescued the people before he ever gave them commandments. But once he'd rescued them, once he'd given them a way out, he gave them these commandments. God gave commandments to his rescued people. <coughs> it wasn't before, it was after. And so God, sitting there, calls out to Moses. And on Mount Sinai, Moses comes up to Mount Sinai, and God gives them commands to follow. Tells them, um, have no other gods. Don't make any idols. Keep my name holy. Keep my day holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Those are the first 10. There's 603 other ones. 613 commandments he gives them and says, I am your God, I am your master, I rescued you without ever doing one good thing on your own. But now that you're mine, you're going to act like you're mine. Now that you're rescued, you're going to act like you're rescued. And so here are some commandments that I want you to follow. Through a mighty way, God gets their attention to show them their commandments. And before Moses can even make it down the mountain, they're already disobeying them. Horrible, horrible ways. So God says, just obey these commandments and you'll be all right. And they don't obey them so well, which leads them to number eight, wanderings. Israel's wanderings caused delay entering the promised land. In fact, they've been such disobedient to these commandments. You know how long they wandered? for 40 years in the wilderness. Can't find their way. Because during these times, they continued to try to seek the Lord, but in this, they couldn't ever get the right rhythm because they would disobey God, take matters into their own hands. They would complain about things. They would say, God, you're not gonna be there. In fact, there's this one time where the people are complaining so bad, they're just going, we're drowned. We're just going to die of thirst out here in the desert, God. What did you, why did you bring us out of Egypt? At least we had water there, not enough graves in Egypt. We're just going to die out here. Is that what you're going to do? And Moses goes before the Lord and says, Lord, I can't deal with these people anymore. I, I don't know what else to do. And he says, take your staff. You're going to go strike something. And Moses goes, game on. This sounds good. Which one do I get to hit first, right? He says, you go up to the rock out in the, in the wilderness. I want you to strike the side of the rock. Strike the side of the rock. What did the rock do? I want you to strike the side of the rock who did nothing, and water is going to flow from its side that will be the salvation of all the people in the desert. Can you think of another time in the Bible where someone in the wilderness would be struck in the side and something would pour forth from him that would bring the salvation for us? Along the way, Jesus is saying, watch for this, watch for this. It's all coming together one day. You better keep your eyes open. After 40 years of wandering, finally, they reached Canaan. They reached the promised land. God gave the promised land to the Israelites. And I say it that way because it's not like the Israelites got it on their own strength. Here's the battle plan. 
Joshua stands down, an angel comes up before him one day, and he doesn't recognize that it, it is a commander of the Lord's army. In fact, a lot of people think that's an angel. I'll tell you who I think it is. I think it's Jesus Christ because he tells him to drop on his knees and say, you're standing on holy ground. An angel never talks like that. But this commander of the Lord's army stands up, and Joshua says, who are you for, us or for our enemy? And this commander says, no. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I'm not joining you, boy. You're joining me. What do you want us to do? I want you to take Canaan. How are we going to take Canaan? How are we going to take it to Jericho? Look at the big walls, God. How are we going to do that? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the marching band out front. You mean the soldiers? No, I want the marching band. Get the priests, the worship leaders. You go out front. Why? You're going to walk around the place for seven days, and then you're going to blow your trumpets really, really loud, and you're going to watch the walls fall. Why? Because God wanted a reputation not of a hard fought army. He wanted the reputation of an almighty God that fought differently than everybody else. Israelites couldn't walk into Canaan and say, look what we did. No, no, no. They could say, look what our God did. So eventually they got to enter in the land flowing with milk and honey. Land promised they had a place where God could be their ruler and they were influenced or overwhelmed by anyone else, anyone else in, in infringing upon what they were supposed to do. So they're there. They're finally, and as Joshua leads them in, the final thing that he does is he takes off his, his commander hat and he stands there as a father and says in Joshua chapter 24, hey, I can't tell you what to do anymore, but I can say this. Choose this day whom you will serve. Serve the God of the, past the river that you caught up with or with gods that your fathers did, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now you've got to make up your mind. And they made up their mind over time. In fact, unfortunately, after Joshua died, they made their mind up many times, which led to a cycle of sin. Israel got stuck in an idolatrous cycle. This cycle took place, you see most of it, in the book of Judges. And what you see is that the people would begin to sin. And then what would happen is, because they would continue to sin in idolatry, God would bring about suffering in their life. God would bring another nation to come in to bring them to their knees. In that suffering, they would have this thing called supplication. They would pray and ask God, remove this suffering for me. And God would send a judge. God would send a leader. God would send a mighty warrior to come in like Samson, like Ehud, like Deborah, different ones to stand up and, and rise up to lead God's people. And then after they'd pray, God would send salvation to the people and they were free again. But as soon as they got comfortable, because I know y'all don't know anything about that, right? You get too comfortable and what are you back in? Sin. Sin leads to suffering. Suffering leads to supplication. Please, God, not again. And he brings about salvation. They got comfortable. Here comes the sin again. Then they go down to suffering. Then they do to supplication. God, help us out. He sends salvation. And they go back and back again, again, and again. Does that story sound familiar to anybody else here? What's going to break this cycle? We need a king. We need somebody to lead us, which brings us probably to one of the most, I think, overlooked parts of the Bible, which I think is also one of the most tragic, and that's number 11, the rejection. Israel rejected God and desired a man to lead them. When Samuel is the priest, he's the leader in these days. One day the people come up to Samuel and say, Samuel, we want a king. And he says, you have one. His name is Yahweh. He is God Almighty. Yeah, but we want a king. Like who? Like all the other nations have a king. What do you want this king to be like? We want him to be tall, we want to be handsome and strong. Anything else? No, that's it. We want a, we want a king 
that's tall, handsome, and strong. So God gives them a king that is tall, handsome, and strong. His name is Saul. And Saul's doing pretty good until, guess what? He comes along with somebody a little taller than him. The thing they put their hope and trust in is exactly the monster that God allowed to come and, and take them down. His name was Goliath. Trust in tallness. Oh, you like a tall guy? Oh, he's taller than everybody? Yeah, trust in that. Watch this big mammoth coming here. And what is he doing? Scared to death. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. So yet there's this kid coming from Bethlehem, shepherd, forgotten by everybody else who walks up to this big old mammoth. And, and he goes, I'm sorry, why isn't anybody fighting him? Have you seen this guy? And David goes, have you seen our God? Have you seen his size? You're worried about that kid? No, 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 no. I'll go up against him. And David makes it plain and simple. It's not about David getting his reputation. First Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 and 46, he says, Goliath, I'm about to take you down. Why? So that all the nations may know there is a God in Israel. That's why you're going down, bro, because the missional aspect of God's working is right here. You've got no chance against me right now because you've been defying him. David takes that sling and knocks that big old mammoth out chops his head off and says, here's your strength, Philistines. And they go running. And all of a sudden, all the people begin to follow another leader. Under David, the kingdom is truly established. David and Solomon led Israel to become a powerful kingdom. King David led a time of bringing the worship back to Israel right there in Jerusalem and establishing the ark, putting up some mighty men to fortify the area, to start to begin and put together a kingdom that could honestly lead the people through the coming years. Israel grew from a band of just some tribes together to an actual powerhouse on the international stage. Then one day he says, God, I want to build you a house. And God goes, that's cute, David. What you want it to look like? I want it to be beautiful of you. He goes, if the heavens can't contain me, son, you think your house can you're not going to build it. I'm going to build you a house. What do you mean, God? There's going to come somebody from your family who's going to be on the throne forever. What, what, what do you mean, God? You mean my son? There's coming a son from you. Somebody from your family. He's never getting off this throne. He's coming. Some people thought it was Solomon. What wasn't Solomon. Now, Solomon was good now. Wiser than any man in the world. Turned out to be richer than any man in the world. And the person who used to write about wisdom forgot about it later in his life. The person who wrote one out of 66 books of the Bible, only one speaks about marriage, Song of Solomon. He wrote about marriage in a way that's so wonderful to read. And yet, he also later in his life had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The man who was the expert at one point in his life became the rebel later. Be careful, folks. You can be the teacher one day and the person rebelling against it later. He stands up. Now listen, the kingdom is growing now. It's doing incredible things, but because of his unbelievable pride and arrogance and sin, and he will not bow down to God, this strong nation that's on the rise has something happen to it so quickly and so horrific that Israel all of a sudden takes a turn and has not returned to its glory since. And that's this division that takes place. The people's sin caused a division between Israel and Judah. So in this moment in Israel's history, because they continue to sin, 
God makes um, a power kind of coup of who's going to take over after Solomon and two um, kind of opposing sides do. And so the nation turns into Israel and Judah. And for a large part of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, a lot of First and Second Chronicles, a lot of the work of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these different prophets, they're speaking to the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah saying, wake up, God's not playing with our sin. Wake up. He's going to send somebody to come in and wipe us out. And the people go, what, Babylon? They're worse than we are. Yeah, but you ought to know better. That's the thing. God's not going to let his kids play like they're not his kids for long. Other people who don't know them, of course they're acting that way. You know better. You know the commandments. You know what our people have been through, and they kept saying, he won't do it. He won't do it. There's no way that he would cause us. This division makes them weak. One king rises, and depending upon where the king goes is where the culture goes, and they continue to slip in further and further in sin until the unthinkable moment happens when they are exiled out of the land. Pagan nations defeated God's people and sent them into exile. Yeah people who are morally worse off than Israel, people who are morally worse off than Judah. But Israel and Judah knew better. They knew God. They knew the word. And they continued to rebel against it. Nation came in to take out Israel. Nation came in to take out Judah. And God's people were sent away to learn how to live in a culture that did not follow God. You read the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some guys who say, if we're going to follow God, we've got to learn how to do it, even when the culture does not. And when everybody else, what, what does Babylon want to do? Let's start changing the books that you read. Let's start changing what you eat. Let's start changing what you drink. We influence the leaders. We got the culture. So what do they do? When they tell Daniel, don't pray anymore to your God. Don't do it anymore. You only pray to the king. What does he do? He opens wide the window so everybody can see him praying. He's not backing down. We'll throw you in the lion's den. That's all right. My God made those lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. That's fine because he can deliver us. And even if he don't, you're not worth bowing down to, king. And somewhere in the fire, in the fire, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? Yeah. But I see four of them. And the fourth looks like a son of God. Somebody else is in the fire with them. Folks, you can either be in the fire at the end of your life or during your life. But if it's during your life, I can tell you who stands with you in those moments. Son of God stands there with you. These folks begin to realize that even in the exile, there's a group of people who stand strong. And honestly, they're stronger than what that culture had ever, ever seen. And eventually, they're able to return. A faithful remnant returns to Israel attempting to rebuild again. People like Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah come back and they ask a pagan king and the king says, here you go, you can go back to that nation. They begin to rally support. Hey, everybody, it's been 70 years. We can go back home. Babylon's home. No, it's not. Israel's home. Canaan's home. This is our land. We want to go back to Jerusalem. And they said, we're comfortable here. Small group returns. They build the temple. It's hard fought battles. They build the temple. They begin to worship. They begin to teach the word again. Then they build the wall up around Jerusalem to keep it fortified. But all on the way, something is even happening in this moment. The remnant that returns, they're unsure of how to continue to follow this king. There's people like Haggai that comes up and says, you guys are working all in your paneled houses and you're forgetting about the temple. 
Your house looks good. His house looks bad. Malachi comes up and says, don't you remember from where we've fallen? And Malachi's calling these people to come back, not to complacent, apathetic worship anymore. <coughs> and at the end of Malachi, he says this. I'm telling you that a day is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, and you're not going to be able to stand before it. It's going to come in burning like a fire, and those who are walking with the Lord are going to rejoice like cows getting out of the stall, leaping through the fields. But everybody else is going to flee in terror. That day is coming, and somebody's going to come in the spirit of Elijah before that day comes. You better get ready. Here he comes. And then after that's 400 years of silence where the people hear nothing from the mouth of God until one night a group of shepherds people on the margin people on the outskirts people in the darkness God says let there be light and all of a sudden they hear this word come out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased people your king has come and Jesus comes, the incarnation. God in the flesh comes to earth on a rescue mission. He came to change everything. And what he does in this moment, this incarnation, God takes on human form. He is born as a baby. They go to the most unlikely candidate, this young woman, of whom no man could get the credit for his birth. In a town of Bethlehem, where a king by the name of David is from, from the line of David, the rightful king of Israel. From the line of Abraham, the right father of the faith. All of these things lining up. And Jesus is born at the fullness of time, reaching out to those shepherds on the fringes, calling those wise men from afar, signaling this message to all. This king is more for the Jewish people. Oh, no, no, no. This king is for all the nations. And so he begins to grow up in obscurity. And there's a season of preparation. In fact, when he becomes 30 years old, around that time, John the Baptist prepares the way for the Messiah, coming in the spirit of Elijah. He comes in, comes in and begins to teach, begin to tell everybody, get ready, prepare the way of the Lord, clear the path, he's coming. And they go, John, are you the Messiah? Oh, no, 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 I no. I can't even tie that guy's sandal. I'm not, but you're, you're baptizing. Oh, I'm baptizing in water. When he comes, he's baptizing in fire. You need to get ready. I'm telling you, he's coming. And then all of a sudden, one day, all these people are going out to the wilderness. They're watching John preach. They're going, we've never seen anybody like this. And in the middle of Johnny, Johnny B's sermon, that day, all of a sudden he goes, look, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. He's here. And John is able to say, mission done, mission accomplished. I am able to step. And so as this preparation happens, Jesus is baptized. In this moment, we see the Trinity where all of a sudden he, Jesus goes down into the water. The Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And there's this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. I'm proud of this boy. Y'all need to listen to him. And then Jesus, as soon as he does that, he walks into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus does in 40 days what the people of Israel could not do in 40 years, withstands every temptation, every test, and he comes out on top. It leads us to start the embarkment of his ministry. Jesus teaches and acts with authority. When he came out from the wilderness, he started a three-year ministry cycle of which the world has yet to recover. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. 
The lame could walk. The dead would rise. When he taught, people said, you don't teach like anybody else we've ever heard before because when you speak, you speak with authority. Of course he was. He was the living word right there in front of them. He didn't mind calling out anybody and preaching anything. Stuff happened. But this was a different type of ministry, right? This picture reminds us of that time that the paralytic was brought before Jesus, lowered down on four corners of the mat, interrupting the sermon, cutting down the hole of the roof. And this guy comes in, his legs don't work. You and I both know what that man's hoping to hear Jesus say. Son, you're healed. Pick up your pallet and walk, right? So all of a sudden he interrupts the service. He comes down and Jesus looks at him and says, son. And you gotta go, the guy's going, pick up my pallet, pick up my pallet, pick up my pallet, pick up my pallet. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Can I walk? Because that's why I came. But Jesus knew that there was an even greater serious issue in his life than his legs. His sins needed to be forgiven more than his legs needed to walk. But the, the Pharisees in the room go, whoa, 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 what did you say? Jesus, nobody can forgive sins other than God. You, don't, you didn't mean that, did you? Oh, in case you were wondering if I said that, in case you're wondering if I have the authority to say that, if, if I can say I could forgive sins, that means I'm God, right? That's right. That's what you're saying. Just to make sure you know I have the authority to do that, pick up your pallet and go home, and the guy walks up. Any question, gentlemen, about who my identity is? Mic drop. See you later. And at that moment, they knew, and they sought an opportunity to kill him. So these, Jesus did what you would think he would do. He gathered a group of people who could protect him that are smart and educated and well-off, right? No, not at all. He started with a group of disciples. Jesus calls and equips a group to follow him. A group of ragtag ruffians who got some issues, y'all. They're not trained. They're not educated. They're not the elite. And that's exactly why Jesus comes to them. For three years, he spends every waking moment with these guys. They watch how he prays. They watch how he lives. They watch how he treats women. They watch how he faces temptation. They watch how he teaches. And then eventually he begins to send them out. Hey, this time, why don't you help me here? Why don't you pass out the food a little bit? Me? Yeah. I want you to do this. Next time, we're going to go out and preach in this village. Oh, that's great. I can't wait until we get this village. No, no, no. I'm not preaching this time. You're going to go out. Peter and Andrew, y'all go out together. But Jesus, you'd be better off if you would do it. No, 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 you've watched me enough. Time to kick you out of the nest, boys. And they begin, and when, when they come back one day, Jesus says, they said, Jesus, we got to tell you what happened on our little mission trip. He said, boys, I saw it from afar. It was like Satan was falling from the skies. He didn't know what to do. Now there's 12 of us going. Now what if you did that to other people as well? Boys, this is what the kingdom is about. These disciples, he began to invest his entire life in. But there's this issue that the associations Jesus kept. Jesus rebukes the prideful and welcomes the humble. The relationships that Jesus had in his life were really the defining thing in a lot of ways about how people treated him. <coughs> so Jesus rebukes the prideful. He welcomes the humble. So Pharisees couldn't stand him. They were jealous of him. Jealous of how all the, pe the people would follow him. Uh, he welcomed the humble. He welcomed the sinful. He welcomed with the people who knew I messed up and I don't mind hiding it. I had no problem with that. In fact, you remember this time, one, one time where all of a sudden these Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. What are you going to do about it? Hey, boys, how'd you catch her? 
what you been looking at? Huh, sounds pretty shady. Um, hey, the law says we got to stone her, right? What do you say, Jesus? Jesus bends down and starts writing in the sand. He says, he who has no sin can cast the first stone. And then he writes again. And then for some reason, John tells us that the oldest Pharisee in the room left. And then the next guy left, and the next guy left. And then all of a sudden, he looks at the woman and says, hey, lady, where's all your accusers? Huh. They're not here? I don't condemn you anymore either. Go and sin no more. It wasn't cheap grace. It was, I forgive you. I can give you a new life, but don't keep getting in this mess anymore. Go, I forgive you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to throw the stone. I could throw the stone. I'm not going to throw the stone. Why? Because I'm going to let that stone come towards me soon. But just don't keep doing it. But because of that type of mentality, it eventually led that these Pharisees couldn't stand it anymore. And they started a process to lead towards Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus volunteers to take our place upon the cross. As we mentioned this morning, the Romans didn't get him. The Jews didn't get him. Satan didn't get him. Judas didn't get him. He humbled himself. He went to the cross. Why? Because he didn't want you to bear the punishment of your sin anymore. When he died on the cross, it was a criminal's death, a horrific death that he did not deserve. And as he is there on a plank of wood, the innocent rock in the wilderness. He is being struck by the wrath of God, and those who are on the other side are free and protected. But those who are not there are still in danger of receiving God's wrath one day. And when he's on this cross, he says seven different statements, but one of them that's so critical is, as he's about to die, he says, it is finished. All your work, all your striving, all these different things, all the sacrificial system, it's met in me right here, right now. The wrath of God is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. So he dies upon the cross. You can imagine that the disciples are going, and now what? Because they thought this was the end. But what they didn't realize is that also all of so much of what the scriptures had pointed, just like Isaac got off the altar that Abraham had set up, Friday happened and Saturday happened, but on Sunday the sun rose again. Resurrection, Jesus defeats sin, death, and the powers of hell on Resurrection Sunday. The women go to the tomb on Sunday morning. The tomb uh, stone is rolled away, and they go, who in the world could have done this? And they run in there, and there is no one in the tomb. All they see is a stack of clothes that have been neatly folded to the side. Tells us something about the person of Jesus that even when he's defeating sin and death, he's still doing his laundry. Come on, ladies, you got to admit, it's pretty awesome, right? Don't miss this fact. In a culture that would not allow a woman's voice to be used in the court of law, he allows those women to be the first ones to see it. They're the witness. They go running to the streets. Peter and James and John, they don't believe it. They go running, and they find out that the tomb is empty. Then all of a sudden, as they're gathered together one day, Jesus appears to them and says, if you need proof, put your fingers here. Put your fingers in my side. Do what you need to do. But I've defeated sin. I've defeated death. What started in the garden as God's punishment of death has now been reversed right now, and I have defeated death. You can have life. And a group of disciples who used to be fearful to be associated with Jesus, even by a teenage girl, don't you belong to him? Are now bold enough 
facing death to say, he got up. He rose from the grave victorious. And after he spent 40 days with them on the earth, he sent them in a commission. Jesus sends out his disciples to make more disciples. He reminds them of what Matthew 28, 18 and 20, as he begins to come to them, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to send you to Jerusalem, then Judea, then even Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Boys, you're going to go out, and you are finally going to bring all the nations back to me. These fellows begin to set out all that Jesus had trained them for three years, developed in their life, prepared them for. Now they have this opportunity. But yet, as they hear this great commission, they gather together, and instead of getting to Jerusalem and Judea, you know what they do? They go inside and lock the door because they don't have something yet. They desperately need to empower them. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to continue the work of Jesus. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish holiday where they celebrated the time where God brought the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Just so happened to be that day. And what happens is it's also reversing another day in Israelites' history. Remember the Tower of Babel, that they built this tower so that they could reach to God? And what did God do when they were trying to reach God? He separated them and gave them new what? Languages. They couldn't understand each other anymore. So they're trying to build this tower to make it about them to reach heaven on their own terms. And God separates them into languages, into groups, into people, and they can't communicate anymore. And on this day day of Pentecost, all these different people are from different countries coming back to Jerusalem, one central location, and they come in with all different languages, all different ethnicities. And on this day, the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, Peter can speak a language he's never spoken before. John can speak a language he's never spoken before. Andrew can speak a And they go outside and go, hey, you speak this language? Come here. I need to tell you something. Jesus Christ died for you. He's alive today. Now the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You can be saved. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved, get baptized, and then go back to their cities and their countries, drenching wet with the Holy Spirit upon them, and the gospel spreads quickly through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the church begins to grow and do incredible things, unfortunately what happens is a thing of persecution. Persecution of the disciples causes the mission to spread even further. You would think the Holy Spirit was enough. You would think they'd have something to celebrate. But what happens is it actually makes them pause, and they get locked up. But persecution by the hands of a guy by the name of Saul actually is the driving force to get them out of Jerusalem to Judea. They're not moving fast enough. And so God uses persecution to get them on the move. There's an old quote that says that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. As they begin to be persecuted, God uses that to propel them out to areas that they've never been. As they're on the run from Saul, they all of a sudden start getting to regions and to areas that they've never been before, and God starts making converts in places like Ethiopia, Samaria, Greece, and different areas. It begins to move so quickly throughout the land that actually persecution leads them there. The guy who's leading this persecution, once again, is a guy by the name of Saul. Stephen is the first one who dies. Do you remember Stephen? Stephen? Deacon in the church, 
serving tables. All of a sudden, they arrest him, and he begins to preach this incredible, incredible message to get their attention. And all of a sudden, he looks at them as they're following along, and he says, hey, guys, remember this in our history. All the time, God's people were listening to the prophets and not listening to them about the one they spoke of. And all these Pharisees are like, that's right. All those old people, they didn't get it. If I'd have been there, I'd have gotten it. And he goes, and they were pointing to someone named Jesus whom you killed. You disdain all the prophets who missed what they were talking about? You missed God in the flesh right in front of your eyes. And they begin to stone him. And then all of a sudden, the church begins to spread out. And Saul is leading this charge. But unfortunately, Saul thinks that he's chasing Jesus. And he finds out that Jesus is chasing him. On the Damascus Road, Paul is converted and leads the missionary movement. Paul is, uh, Saul's on the road, hunting down these people, hunting down pastors, hunting down ministers, hunting, hunting down missionaries, killing them. And all of a sudden, he's blinded by the light on the way, and he hears this voice from heaven. And what this voice says is absolutely glorious for every single person to give you hope and encouragement tonight. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Who are you, Lord? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is in heaven, y'all. What do you mean? He's not persecuting Jesus right now. You don't understand this. When you mess with Jesus' followers, you mess with him. When Stephen was being stoned, it says that he looked up and it says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know that's why that's interesting? Because every other time in the New Testament when Jesus is mentioned at the right hand of God, he's always sitting because that's what the high priest done when he's done paying the sacrifice. The job is done, he can sit. But when Stephen starts getting stoned, he rises from his seat and goes, come on, son, you can make it just a little bit longer. Endure a little bit. You're almost here, baby. You almost made it. He's there with them. And he says, you're persecuting me. When you're messing with the church, you're persecuting me. Saul is converted. He receives the gospel. He's able to see Physically, he's able to see spiritually, and then all of a sudden he started going into some of the context, the conventions where he was leading about how to kill Christians and saying, I'm now one of them. The faith I used to destroy, he begins to lead in a way that God has equipped him to do in an amazing, amazing way. So what happens on the day of council, though, is that the church leaders affirm that the gospel doors are open to all people. What unfortunately happens is, is that Peter and Paul and different guys start to see incredible opportunities for the gospel to be reached outside of the Jewish people. And they go, this is weird. God's reaching the Gentiles, the other folks. We only thought he loved us. So do we need to make them Jewish before they're Christian? Do they need to start doing all these rituals and following all these rules? And this council, the best church business meeting that I've ever heard about, right, gets up and says, we're not going to put any prerequisites on the gospel. Anyone can come to faith. Jew, Gentile, no matter what you are. And so all of a sudden, the missionary movement, the people that start unleashing, it's not just a Jewish movement. It starts with some Jewish people, but then all of a sudden it starts spreading to all people. And they say that, that Christ alone is the way that, for salvation. And so as this council does, they start to break out. And honestly, this church planning movement is born. In church, leaders are equipped and churches are planted. The word church means gathering or assembly. It wasn't a building. It was groups of people. So whenever Paul would go into a place and he witnessed some people and they would come to faith in Christ, eventually he would establish pastors. He would establish deacons. He would establish a church to be able to say, I got to leave this city because I got to go to the next one, but I want to make sure a church is established here. The goal ever since that moment, the goal of Rocky Creek, is to go to places where Christ is not named, 
to find some people who call upon Jesus for salvation, to start to disciple them, to call out pastors, to call out deacons, to establish a church, and then to pull out and go to the next spot. That's the goal. Just plant churches who plant churches. Make disciples who make disciples. And so Paul would begin to make all these churches. <coughs> He'd come alongside and develop and plant all these churches. And what would happen to them was that sometimes you have to imagine there's a guy who'd been a Christian for a few months, and then all of a sudden because of persecution or something else, Paul had to leave Thessalonica and go over here to Ephesus. Well, all of a sudden, who's going to be the pastor? Well, you've been a Christian about two weeks. You look pretty good, Right? And so some of these guys are thrust into service, thrust into ministry real quick. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, they get put into a position of leadership they're not prepared for. And so what happens is Paul begins to hear stuff that they're doing as a church, teaching as a church, practicing as a church. And he goes, time out. I got to make sure you guys aren't lost in this, which brings us to number 14, the instructions. Letters are written to clarify beliefs and behaviors to the church. Paul begins to write back to Philippi. Uh, Peter begins to write to certain churches. James writes to churches. Paul writes to the Romans. He writes to Corinthians. He writes to Galatians. He writes to Ephesians. He can't be in all these places, but these letters we benefit from are churches that he knows about where he hears either their beliefs are off or their behaviors are off, and I need to help fix it. Keep the church pure. Keep the church established through this. Then no matter what happens, that there's going to be a moment where the church is still pure. And so letters are circulated, but what was great is that a letter that was sent to a city like Ephesus also begins to circulate to other cities as well and begins to take what is a huge section of our New Testament to teach us what beliefs and behaviors of a church is supposed to look like. The final letter that we know that is written is this book called Revelation, which brings us to the 15th point of recreation. Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Y'all didn't think we were going to get to Revelation, did you? All right. Here's the deal. The Apostle John was, uh, had the opportunity to recant Christ or die. They said, John, if, if you tell people that, you, uh, that Jesus is resurrected, we're going to kill you. He goes, how are you going to kill me? He goes, we're going to throw you in a vat of burning oil. They did, and he didn't die. And they got scared. So they put him on an island called Patmos where all prisoners went to go die because they didn't know what to do with this guy. While he's on this island with all these other criminals waiting to die, he gets a revelation where Jesus comes and speaks to him and says, Son, things are about to get worse. And they're going to get worse after that. But hold on. I promise you it's going to be all right. Battles are going to happen. Things are going to take place. Horrible things will happen but I'm coming back. I'm going to restart all things again. I'm going to make all things new. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, one of the things that John sees in this vision, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new earth at um, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all 
things new. He said, write this down. These words are faithful and true. You listen to me. It is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And in the last words, it says that John saw this. Then he said, oh, will you come? In verse 12, he says, behold, I'm coming. I'm going to repay everybody. I'm the alpha, the omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. In chapter 22 of verse 20, he says, He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The Bible is not isolated, disconnected stories. It is a story of what God is doing to make Jesus famous among every life and every. And at the end of this book, folks, I don't know what chapter you are reading right now, but I have read the last chapter and we're going to win. We're going to win. And so as I wrap up this last minute, you have there on the Bible summarized. Um, once again, I hope this has been helpful for you to see a big picture of what the Bible is, but this has been a way uh, I used this at our church a couple years ago to help through. This is just a way that I look through the Bible to help do this. I want to tell you that um, as this is my attempt, it's kind of making this rhythmic and, and rhyming to keep this up. I have not memorized this. I found out that one of, um, that my children have started to. One day they started to tell me the story of the Bible and they said, God created the heavens and the earth. I said, whoa, where did you learn that? They said, I don't even memorize it so we can tell this other people the story of the Bible. So I'm not there yet, but I'm going to read this to you and then we're going to pray and we're going to be done. Here's the Bible summarized. Let me get it from this way. It'd be easier. God created the heavens and the earth. Mankind rebelled trying to prove their worth. Sin escalated to the shedding of blood. God's wrath displayed in the form of a flood. Yet one was blessed to be a blessing. A nation promised, a Messiah coming. A people rescued out from slavery. The law given to show their inability. Finally settled into the promised land. Yet the cycle of sin punished again and again. A kingdom established, kings took up the crown, yet the greatest of men still let the people down. A nation divided while prophets warned in the streets until godless enemies came and administered defeats. A people in exile suffering with their guilt, a remnant returns, a city rebuilt. The people feared if they'd been left on their own 400 silent years before the answer was known. But glory to God. And peace upon the earth. A savior was given. A virgin gave birth. God in the flesh lived free from sin. Jesus conveyed grace and truth from within. Recognized as teaching with authority. Despised and rejected by the Pharisees. Christ crucified on the hill of Calvary. Exchanged righteousness for our depravity. Yet on the third day the savior would rise. Commissioned the disciples in his ascent to the sky. The Holy Spirit empowered the gospel unashamed. The church established giving everything away. No amount of persecution could keep the message back. Paul was converted, proclaimed the faith he attacked. Among the nations, churches were multiplied. Letters were sent, doctrine and practice clarified. A revelation was given for though the future seems grim, Christ will return and we will be with him. Amen? Amen. And Lord Jesus, that is what we long for today. Your word is not boring. We are. 
Your word is not somehow uh, cumbersome to read. We are cumbersome to get to the point. We want to know this book. We want to know your word because the better we know the word, the better we know you. And Lord, we have read the chapter at the beginning, but we've read the chapter at the end, and we have faith and hope and promise, God, that what we're experiencing right now, this isn't it. And no matter what virus is going on, no matter what our culture is doing, no matter what government's doing, no matter what other nations are doing, we know what our sovereign king is doing right now. He is seated on his throne. You are rested assured. You are not taken by anything going on in our culture, anything going on in our world right now. You are king of kings. You are lord of lords. You are alpha and omega, beginning and last, future and past. You are the one who is, who was, and who will be forevermore. And God, no matter what chapter we are in right now, we trust that you will write the final one. And it's for your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Thank you guys for coming tonight.